Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. This is your host, Christian Peterson, and I have the good fortune of speaking with Angela Stint about her new book, The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century. Angela Stint, welcome to the show. Delighted to be on it. Thank you. Uh, Before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about uh, your background. I certainly can. So um, I am an academic. I uh, direct the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and I've been there for most of my uh, career. Um, I have also served in the U.S. government twice, uh, once in the Office of Policy Planning in the Department of State, and that was uh, 18 months, the last 18 months of the Clinton administration and the first six months of the George W. Bush administration. And I have also served as the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. Uh, so I have um, uh, basically combined academia with some policy work, and most of my research and writing is policy-related. That's interesting. Did you find it uh, that uh, it was an advantage, your academic background in the policy planning? Uh, yes, I think the Office of Policy Planning is one of the places in the State Department where they um, tend to hire academics or people from think tanks because you're supposed to think sort of more broadly, you're supposed to do more predictive work um, and uh, give some kind of intellectual guidance, if you like, to the policymaking. And just uh, so we're on the same page, where did you get your uh, graduate degree? Okay, so I got a master's degree in Soviet studies at Harvard University and then a PhD in government at Harvard University. Uh, And I wrote my PhD thesis on the political economy of West German-Soviet relations. I looked at how the West German government had tried to use the economic relationship to get concessions from the Soviet Union on the German question. Interesting. Who, Who was your advisor? Uh, my advisor was Professor Adam Ulam, one of the great um, yes. experts on the Soviet Union and on Russia. He was my advisor. Yeah, that must have been an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was someone who, you know, um, never went to the Soviet Union, emigrated from Poland in 1939 at the last moment, um, and, and never had access to the kind of documents that we now have access to. But he understood very well Stalin's mind, the mind of other Soviet leaders. Um, uh, and, he, you know, he approached them with great sensitivity and I would say common sense. Yes, I, I agree. I, I enjoyed reading many of his works. Um. <laughs> So how did you come to write this book, The Limits of Partnership? How did that come about? Well, I think a combination of academic work that I'd done and then working in uh, two different administrations, um, I kept asking myself the question of why it had been so difficult for the United States and Russia to develop a productive relationship after the collapse of the Soviet Union because on the face of it, certainly the United States had hoped after uh, the new Russia was born in 1992 that, an, that a post-communist Russia uh, would move closer toward the West and it would be possible for the U.S. and this new Russia to develop 
uh, a relationship that was impossible during the Cold War because of the ideological differences and because of the fact that we were nuclear antagonists. Um, and so that, that was my basic question, because what I saw um, over the past really 22 years since the Soviet collapse is a pattern of uh, U.S. administrations coming into office uh, with fairly high expectations about the ability to find a new way, a more productive way to engage Russia, and all of those attempts ending in disappointment. And when I talked to, I talked to many um, American and some Russian officials for my book, and when I talked to Russian officials, they would say the same thing. You know, both of our post-communist presidents came into office hoping to have a much better relationship with the United States, and these expectations also ended in disappointment. So that was really the question, and um, even though uh, it was uh, President Obama's administration in his first term that coined the word reset, uh, resetting relations with Russia, what I saw were really four different resets, uh, attempts to improve the relationship since the Soviet collapse. Yeah, the, the, you use the uh, the idea of resets very effectively in the book, and I, I, I guess the place to start would be with the first reset, uh, with the uh, the first uh, George H. Uh, w. Bush administration. Uh, how would you evaluate his policies toward the Soviet Union? I know the scholarship is generally pretty positive, but did you think he did enough to try to get move Russia in the direction of moving toward uh, democratic government, if if I can use that term? Yeah, I mean, I think, of course, his administration only overlapped with the new Russia um, by one year. That is yes. to say, the year 1992. Um, but I think I think it was a very judicious policy because it focused on the most important uh, uh, issue, which, of course, was the nuclear legacy. Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there were three nuclear states um, on the territory of the former Soviet Union. That is to say, Russia, obviously, and then Ukraine, Kazakhstan. Um, and Ukraine was the third largest nuclear country in the world in terms of the numbers of weapons it possessed. So the focus was very much on ensuring that Russia became the only nuclear successor state. And this was also, I think, important for the Russians because, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed. The new Russia was very weak. Um, it didn't really want to be a junior partner to the U.S. And in dealing with this one issue, nuclear issues, that's one where we were more equal. Um, the Bush administration also did not pay attention to what was happening inside of Russia. It was much more focused on negotiating the, on the nuclear level. Uh, and I think that was also, from the Russian point of view, at least retrospectively, they like it that there wasn't this attempt to of democracy promotion. Now, the third and somewhat more controversial issue is could the U.S. have done more economically for Russia? Um, some of the Russians and some Americans at that point argued, well, we should have given Russia a new Marshall Plan. Um, its economy was devastated. We needed to help it get on its feet. But there was no appetite in the Congress for doing that. Um, after all, the reason we gave martial aid to Europe after World War II was because we wanted to prevent the Soviet Union from gaining influence there. So um, the U.S. did put together an aid package for Russia, um, but some would argue that it, that it wasn't enough. But I think in general, uh, the Russians look back on that uh, first and rather brief set as a, as a, as a more um, positive one. So does he still have a very, I mean, as, as much as Russians think about this, does he have a pretty good reputation among Russian policymakers and the public? He certainly does. President George H.W. Bush does. They also look back to the first Gulf War when, of course, the Soviet Union still existed, but where the United States worked with the Soviet Union to put together a coalition, they enlisted the Soviet Union's help. 
And, you know, to fast forward, in 2007, when the U.S.-Russian relationship was, uh, you know, under a lot of stress, uh, President Putin went to Kennebunkport, Maine, uh, for a summit with President George W. Bush, but President George H. W. Bush was also there. And uh, for instance, I think that was a signal that from the Russian point of view, the fact that um, uh, Bush 41 was there um, meant that they, you know, that they hoped that they would get a better result. Interesting. I, I don't know if I can connect this in any way, but I, we see these pictures coming out of Russia, of Putin doing things like riding motorcycles and fishing with his shirt off. And <laughs> I got that video. Uh, I played hockey in college and they showed the picture that he's mastered the game of hockey in a couple of years. It's, I don't know where that fits in, but uh, the, the, the elder Bush does things like jump out of airplanes and <laughs> and all sorts. Of, I don't know what the connection is. They seem to do kind of be out there in, in the public eye doing, you know. Yes, they, they like to do somewhat dangerous and risky uh, yes. <laughs> stunts, if you like. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, what about the Clinton administration's relationship with Boris Yeltsin, uh, what you, we would call uh, reset number two? What, uh, how do you think Clinton uh, handled U.S.-Russian relations during his time in office? Well, th that, of course, is a much now more controversial issue, certainly in Russia and to some extent uh, in the United States, too. Um, I just come back. Um, last week, I went to uh, the 11th uh, conference of the Valdai International Discussion Club, which is a group that, of foreign experts on Russia that's invited to Russia once a year, and we meet with President Putin. And last, uh, uh, and at the end of the uh, conference, he delivered a, a very sharp attack on the United States. This in Sochi, uh, where he talked about particularly um, going back to the 90s, the United States um, at the end of the Cold War, instead of sitting down with Russia to talk about establishing new rules of the game, a new world order, it just went ahead and um, it tried to impose on Russia uh, the global rules that were really devised by the West during the Cold War. Um, and so you, if you listen both to President Putin and to many other officials, um, they will claim that the 1990s was a time when uh, Russia was humiliated, it was forced to accept U.S. positions um, that it didn't uh, agree with and where it was not given a chance to have an input into them. Now, having said that, you know, from the point of view of the United States, when President Clinton came into office, he really did believe that Russia was a very high priority. He thought this was a tremendous moment for the United States to seize the initiative and, again, develop a much better relationship with a post-communist Russia. Um, but very much also the, the Clinton administration did believe um, in the idea of sort of a liberal international order and that democracy promotion was a very important part of that because democracies didn't go to war with each other. And if you wanted to have a better relationship with Russia, you should really do everything you could to promote democracy there. Uh, and so that's when you have a fairly... Uh, a widespread program of democracy assistance, U.S.-backed NGOs there. Um, President Clinton also realized that, you know, in the absence of many institutions, the institutions of the Soviet Union had collapsed. Um, it was very important to cultivate a good relationship with the new president, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, and in the beginning, President Yeltsin was certainly very amenable to this. He also hoped that by developing um, a close personal relationship with President Clinton, uh, Russia could would still be treated as an equal. It would be uh, an equal partner with the United States. Things have, in retrospect, um, of course, didn't work out that way because of the very the great imbalance in power at the time. 
Uh, I would say for the first Clinton administration, the relationship with Russia and the relationship between the two presidents seemed to be working rather well. Um, certainly, if you read President Clinton's memoirs, um, he's very, you know, he's very generous in what he says about President Yeltsin. President Yeltsin somewhat less generous in what he says about President Clinton, but still they seemed to get on. And in fact, in 1993, in October 1993, when Yeltsin had a confrontation with the with the Parliament, which was a relic from the Soviet Union because they were opposed to his reforms, and he actually used military force, uh, tanks were out, force against um, the people in the Parliament, people got killed. The United States backed Russia, so did most of the um, other European countries in its assault on the Parliament. So everything seemed to be working reasonably well. The problem was with the foreign policy. Um, first of all, when the United States got involved in the war in Bosnia, um, Russia had always claimed that it was a traditional partner of the Serbs. And when Yugoslavia fell apart and, and these wars broke out, um, uh, you know, in the beginning, the Russians said that they wanted to support their Serb allies. They did go along with the U.S. in Bosnia. Uh, but then as time went on, um, Yeltsin's health deteriorated. We now know that in 1996, when he was reelected, uh, by a rather slim margin, he had a heart attack between the two rounds of elections. And he, he was in, in generally not in very good health. He wasn't always uh, running the country. He had other people running the country. And then a lot more pressure started to be put on him that Russia was conceding too much to the United States. And so by the time we get to the war in Kosovo in 1999, when the United States um, bombed Serbia um, to stop the killing that was going on in Kosovo, uh, the Russians were very much opposed to that. Yeltsin was very much opposed to it, um, and at that point was um, on his way out. And so that reset ended rather badly. And, and as I say, in the U.S., we still tend to view the 1990s as a time of a greater hope of more pluralism, um, of the potential for more democracy in Russia, even if it was somewhat chaotic. Um, uh, but now the narrative that comes out of Russia is that this was a time of chaos and of humiliation by the United States, really culminating not only in the Kosovo War, but in the 1998 collapse of the ruble, the economic crisis there. And the U.S. has given the blame for much of this. Do you find that argument persuasive? I mean, do you think the, the economic chaos in the 1990s could have been avoided if the Russian leaders themselves had implemented better policies? Or is it uh, just, uh, the, for lack of a better term, the, uh, the side effects of, of transitioning from a communist state to a more free market economy and perhaps maybe the U.S. could have done more? Is it, you know, where do we... Yeah, the problem is that, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, its economy was in very bad shape. Um, you know, oil prices had been very, very low in the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, oil, uh, oil exports are the source of most of, were the source of the Soviet Union's and Russia's today, hard currency exports. So it was in very bad shape. And in the beginning, you know, no one knew whether it would actually how Russia would survive. And so the policy that the United States recommended to Russia, which was known as shock therapy, which was to free prices, sort of to go cold turkey from a state-run system to a market economy, not gradually, but, but as I say, sort of abruptly, that's something that I think um, uh, that the, the Russians, in retrospect, many Russians feel, you know, was the wrong recipe for them. But on the other hand, the real problem in Russia in the 1990s was the development of a very corrupt 
opaque form of capitalism. And there I think you can't really blame the United States too much because everything, these things were going on beneath the surface. Um, you know, it, it, the U.S. wasn't aware of, of some of these schemes. And so ultimately, it, the Russians themselves produced this rather distorted form of market uh, capitalism in the 1990s. Yeah, the privatization scheme, uh, in retrospect, looks like a terrible policy. Um, that seems to be what many people think, um, as what Yeltsin used to uh, kind of get some political support, selling off the assets, creating this billionaire class. Um, but, but anyways, uh, the the issues that uh, that for the lack or, that you keep seeing over and over again in uh, Russian U.S. relations begin to take place during the 1990s, and you've touched on it briefly, but. Do you think that uh, Clinton administration, you know, provoked Russia, uh, if I can use that term, when it agreed to expand NATO? So that, you know, this remains a very, a very controversial issue. I mean, um, as you say in the, in the book, I go through certain constants that have been there throughout the last 22 years and haven't varied that much between Republican and Democratic administrations, and that is the nuclear legacy and questions of, of the post-Soviet space and Euro-Atlantic security architecture. The problem in the 1990s was that after communism collapsed, and at least in Eastern Europe, the East European countries, of course, felt vulnerable because they had been, you know, more or less for centuries under Russian domination or influence. Um, and there was also concern in the West that you saw the rise of kind of nativist nationalist parties in the different East European countries. And people were worried that you'd have a replay of the 1930s, which of course led to World War II. So everyone was very concerned about domestic developments there too. And joining the European Union um, was obviously ultimately the goal of many of these countries, but that took a long time and joining NATO was was easier. And so, uh, first of all, NATO created something called uh, the Partnership for Peace, which was just a partnership arrangement with any country that wanted to have one with NATO, any European country, including Russia. But then very shortly thereafter, the um, Clinton administration and also the German government, which was very concerned about Poland, um, given its history, uh, decided that, that NATO should move to enlarge, to offer membership to um, countries that had formerly been in the Warsaw Pact. Um, and at the same time, um, the United States and NATO offered Russia its own unique relationship with NATO, which was signed in 1997, which at that point was called the Permanent Joint Council. But the problem was that for the Russians, NATO had always been the main enemy during the Cold War. And even though they had their own you know, unique relationship with NATO, they still saw NATO as a threat. And I think what one can say is that the U.S. and its allies probably should have tried harder to create a system in the 1990s, a Euro-Atlantic security system in which Russia had a stake. Because it's clear with what you see going on in Ukraine now and what's been happening, that Russia didn't have really a, 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 a firm stake in that system. Now, there are many people uh, in the West, in Russia, who claim that uh, the Bush administration had promised Gorbachev that NATO would never expand. That's not true. No promises were made. It may have been Gorbachev's understanding, but there was there was no there was really no discussion of that at the time of German unification. But nevertheless, we are you know it is true that as a result of these decisions that were made in the 1990s, uh, Russia felt that it was excluded from this Euro-Atlantic security system, and therefore it didn't have much of an interest in defending it. 
So, I mean, uh, I, you know, I read Foreign Affairs and I read all these these other books about U.S.-Russian uh, relations. And some people, on the American side anyways, keep making an argument that the NATO expansion is an excuse for other reasons. Russia wants to, you know, have a regional hegemony. They they have a different understanding, this zero-sum understanding of international affairs uh, to protect their interests. I mean, do you believe that they, they actually considered a threat to their security to have NATO expand eastward? Is, or is it uh, something that's just used as an excuse for other reasons, as some, um, you know, uh, government officials and historians and poli-scientists argue? It's just... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, objectively, if you look at it, if I was sitting in the Kremlin and you think, what are the great threats to Russia? Well, first of all, you have a major threat on Russia's south, you know, Islamic extremism, all the things that we've been seeing both in Afghanistan, in the Middle East. Um, that is a threat to Russia because Russia has a large and growing Muslim population, some of which are radicalized, uh, large numbers of whom, by the way, at the moment are fighting with the Islamic State. So Russia, and it does have a security, that is a real security threat to Russia. If you look, you know, at China, right now, Russia and China, you know, have seem to have very good relations, their relations are improving. But in the longer run, if you look at the Russian Far East, which is being depopulated, an area some of which used to once belong to China. You don't know in the future what Chinese ambitions uh, will be in that part of the world. Um, and so you could say that objectively, at least from our point of view, the, the safest, the quietest, at least until recently, until the Ukraine crisis, border is Russia's western border. Uh, NATO has repeatedly said it doesn't see Russia as an enemy um, and uh, that it's, it's reached out to Russia. If you just compare um, the last time NATO came up with a strategic doctrine that talks about partnership with Russia, if you read Russia's foreign policy doctrine, it has NATO as the main enemy. So, uh, so you could make the argument that this is all something that's used for propaganda purposes, that's used to kind of uh, drum up domestic support against this Western enemy. Um, but I'm sure that there are some Russian officials who probably really believe this, and particularly maybe older officials who were around during the Cold War and when NATO was, you know, the Soviet Union's enemy. Um, uh, and, but as I say, it, it's you know, it's very it's very difficult to come up with a definitive answer to that. But I think it's probably a mixture of both. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and you raised an interesting point about terrorism and the Muslim population. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on kind of where the Russian government and Clinton war with the issue of terrorism as uh, his or Clinton administration came to an end and where the war in Chechnya uh, fits into all this uh, in understanding the evolution of U.S.-Russian relations during the 1990s. Yeah, so um, in 1990, well, after the Soviet collapse, the Republic of Chechnya um, declared its independence. And um, it was sort of for the first couple of years, more or less autonomous. And then in 1994, um, because of rising levels of violence and, and, and radicalism, Russia um, basically launched a war in Chechnya. Um, that was the first Chechen war. And at that point, what President Clinton said was that this was like um, 
the U.S. Civil War. This was like um, President Lincoln, and that just as um, the U.S. had fought to keep the you know the the southern states together, keep mm-hmm. one country. So Boris Yeltsin um, had the right to do what he was doing in Chechnya to keep uh, the Russian Federation together. The problem was that as that war went on, and there were reports of atrocities and human rights violations, uh, uh, there was much more criticism within the United States about the war in Chechnya and also within Russia among people who were opponents of what Yeltsin was doing. Um, And so it became a little bit more difficult to defend that. But that war then ended, the first Chechen war ended, and um, Chechnya was largely, again, between roughly 1996 and 1999, kind of independent, um, uh, sort of um, uh, almost run as an, indep- as an independent state, although, um, you know, there was still quite a lot of violence and corruption there. So then in 1999, um, when Mr. Putin was named prime minister, um, that was in September of 1999, he then launched a second war in Chechnya. There was a series of apartment bombings uh, in Moscow and other Russian cities, which were attributed to Chechen terrorists. Some people don't believe that. There are those people who believe that it was Russian intelligence services who um, bombed, who laid the bombs because they then wanted an excuse to get involved in Chechnya again. Um, But there again, even though that second Chechen war um, was criticized, uh, and also during the the presidential election campaign, once in 2000, once um, President Bush and President Putin met, which it was in July 2001, um, just a few months before 9-11, a couple of months, and and, um, Putin warned President Bush about the dangers of terrorism, Um, and then when 9-11 happened, and so I have this as a third reset, but it's in fact the initiative was President Putin's. And then President Putin called President Bush and said, you know, we're allied, we support you in your war against terror. What Russia hoped was that that, that you would then get back to a situation where you had the U.S. and Russia as two allies as they'd been in World War II with a common enemy, um, Islamic fundamentalism and terrorism. And in fact, once the U.S. and Russia did begin this third reset, the Bush administration, um, for quite a long time, didn't make any comments about the war in Chechnya, didn't criticize Russia uh, for what it was doing there, uh, because it, it saw this as a common struggle against terrorism. Yeah, I, re- I remember that time period very well. And, and when I was reading your book, I was surprised. I didn't know this, and I'm not sure how this escaped my attention. Um, I'm supposed to be uh, an expert in U.S. foreign policy, that Russia had arrested Armin Azawari and had him under lock and key right. for a while before they let him go. Mm-hmm. I did not know that before reading your book. That, In retrospect, that's an amazing uh, it is an amazing thing. And then, of course, the reason they let him go was because they didn't get any, have any more information about exactly who he was. Um, and then obviously he went, then went on as instrumental person in the, in the 9-11 attacks. Yes, absolutely. Um, but you, you transition nicely in, in, into the third reset in kind of uh, where the United States uh, and Russia were entering the, the 21st century as uh, Russia trying to position itself as part of this broader war on terror, including Chechnya within that definition of war on terror. Um, beyond that, I mean, what do you think Putin really hoped to accomplish by, you know, forming more of a common cause with the U.S. after 9-11? What was he trying to do over the long term? 
Well, I think what he was trying to do, and I quote one of my Russian colleagues saying this, was to create an equal partnership of unequals. In other words, he wanted the United States to recognize Russia as an equal partner, despite the fact that obviously militarily and economically it was still much weaker than the, than the U.S. Um, and that as part of that partnership and this respect, Russia would recognize that the U.S. had a sphere of influence in its own neighborhood, i.e. Latin America, but that the United States would recognize that Russia as a great power had a right to a sphere of influence or privileged interests in the post-Soviet space. I think that's definitely what uh, Putin expected. Um, and I think that he also expected that the U.S. would recognize that another key element of the U.S.-Russian relationship that made them equals is the nuclear relationship. They're two nuclear superpowers. And this, this will, again, going forward, would be a very important aspect of that. Well, from Putin's point of view, this began, became, began to unravel even at the end of 2001 uh, when President Putin visited President Bush at Crawford and they had, you know, this very friendly summit. But even then, um, the, the discussions were that the United States was planning to withdraw from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, a treaty that had been signed in 1972 by President Nixon and Leonid Brezhnev, um, because the United States was pursuing a missile defense program, and in order to do that, it couldn't be restrained by these treaties. So, and then the other thing was that the Bush administration, the top officials there, thought that arms control negotiations and this whole nuclear regime, if you like, was a throwback to the Cold War days. And they weren't interested in preserving arms control treaties and arms control negotiations with Russia. And that was another way in which I think uh, Putin felt that the United States was sort of disrespecting an order that had existed before. And then, um, so that, that I think was the first moment in sort of already in 2002 when the U.S. withdrew from the ABM treaty and then we signed a very brief arms control treaty with Russia, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was just a few pages long. And then, of course, if you're talking about uh, you know, respecting uh, you, you, Russia's rights in its neighborhood, for instance. Uh, if you fast forward a bit, there were, there were in 2003, there was the first color revolution in Georgia, where the United States seemed to be supporting uh, uh, Mr. Saakashvili, who overthrew Edward Shavanadze. And then, of course, in 2004, there was a color revolution in Ukraine. And so what Putin did, what he saw was those things combined with the invasion of Iraq, which, of course, Russia opposed, and where the United States was also carrying out regime change by getting rid of Saddam Hussein. He saw this, again, as a challenge to, the inter to an international order um, that he believed in, plus the fact that we bypassed the United Nations Security Council in going into Iraq. And again, in the United Nations Security Council, <clears throat> the U.S. and Russia are more or less equals. And they both have a veto. So I think that's a long way of saying that if Putin had maybe expected to be interacting with the United States according to rules of the game, which elevated Russia's status, and what he saw was U.S. policy uh, that seemed to disrespect um, Russia's status. Yeah, you, uh, you touched on a number of important issues I'm interested in, in uh, asking a, a bit more about. Uh, Let's start with uh, what uh, the Iraq War. Um, depending on who you read, uh, some people think Russia was, you know, either being petulant 
or wanted to prevent the war because of its relationship with the Iraqi government, whether it be uh, economically or economic relationships or simply the fact that it had oil contracts. Um, do you think Putin was generally serious? I mean, he wrote about, about this and he's written about this and talking or excuse me, spoken about this in a number of other forums that he really fears that the United States, you know, is trying to basically run the world and create its own set of rules for itself and the own set of rules for other countries. Do you think he paid more attention to the issue as, you know, distorting his understanding of how the world should work through international law, through the United Nations, because that gave status to Russia in the Security Council? Or was it simply he wanted to keep the, the Russian government's relationship with Iraq um, on, 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 the, on the, you know, on the, on the level where eventually they could get in and get oil out of, out of that country? Yeah, I would say, again, it's it's not one thing or the other. I mean, certainly the element of sort of bypassing the United Nations, going in and using force to do regime change um, was certainly against Putin's understanding of the international order. But Russia did have, you know, a significant economic interest in Iraq. It had the oil contracts. It had the trade with Iraq. Iraq, even though its relationship with Iraq you know, traditionally had been complicated. Um, it certainly, you know, had a working relationship um, with Saddam Hussein, particularly Yevgeny Primakov, who was a former foreign minister and still, you know, an important advisor who had a personal relationship with them. And from the Russian point of view, it looked as if the U.S. wanted to go in and remove a regime um, uh, in a country and where Russia, you know, had strong economic interests and the United States didn't. And you heard this complaint about the Russians, you know, in other areas too, Iran, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about in a minute, but mm -hmm. that the U.S. again was trying to uh, take actions that would have, um, uh, you know, uh, would have been detrimental to Russia's economic interests, so not taking those interests into account. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a complex subject to, to get your head around. Um, what I'm also interested in, it raises, it's, it's an issue raised by the color revolutions, because if you read, and I know you have, you know, the rhetoric coming out of Russia about these revolutions, they, you know, tend to see them as this, you know, Western plot. And there are especially a lot of comments about the non-governmental groups, uh, National Endowment Democracy comes up. Uh, to the top of the list, that these are basically agents of the U.S. government who are out to, uh, you know, destroy the Russian order and destroy the Russian sphere of influence. Um, and the average American, you know, will counter that these are non-governmental groups and the government can't control them. I mean, do you think that at the end of the day that's they understand or they're using that as an excuse just to pursue what they perceive as their interests? Or do they generally think that the U.S. is using these private groups to topple other governments and push them out of their, you know, rightful sphere of influence uh, in the former Soviet republics. Well, I think the best example of this is when the Russians during the Orange Revolution, and I guess during the Rose Revolution in Georgia too, said that George Soros and President Bush were in collusion to try and overthrow <laughs> these governments, right? This shows a complete misunderstanding of the American domestic system. Mr. Soros, who of course support, supported uh, numerous NGOs and was a great promoter of democracy, was inalienably, unalterably opposed to President Bush and in fact spent a lot of money 
party trying to get him defeated um, in yes. the um, 2004 election. Um, and so, but of course, you know, President Bush, once he talked about the freedom agenda and supporting democracy, and he certainly supported Georgia, he, you know, the, the U.S. government had its interest in this, but the idea that there's collusion between <laughs> these NGOs supported by George Soros and, and the President of the United States is, is a fantasy, uh, it, you know, if you understand anything about the American system. I do not believe, because the Russian, because the Russian system operates different, differently, and there are no, there are very few independent NGOs in Russia, and certainly under Putin, those that there were have been dismantled. Um, from the Russian point of view, and then the Russians suspect that most of the NGOs in Russia, you know, supported by U.S. money and they're directed against, you know, uh, President Putin. I think they probably genuinely didn't understand that, you know, um, the National Democratic Institute or the International Republican Institute or different NGOs, yeah. that these really are independent organizations and that even if they do get funding from the State Department, they operate independently. I think that's not something that they were able to understand or even the Open Society Institute, which is, um, you know, funded by George Soros. Yeah, I wonder if Soros in his wild streams thought he'd be lumped in with George W. Bush. And, and, <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure he wasn't. Um, yeah, so but that, that's that's interesting how it plays out, and uh, I guess the next place to go would be um, the war uh, between Russia and Georgia. Um, it's an episode that I remember quite well, and, and even people who don't necessarily follow history that well, even I notice in my classrooms, have some inkling of this war because it was right around the Olympics, and it uh, got a lot of play during the, the in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics when Bush and Putin were seated near each other. Um, at the end of the day, is that who who's to blame for that mess? If if we can apportion blame, is it Georgia? Uh, you know, acting, uh, uh, you know, going too fast to try to put uh, uh, the the provinces, the disputed provinces, which I'll ask you to say something about, uh, as uh, Abkhazia um, and South Ossetia. Was it bad policy on Georgia, or was just Russia looking for a fight, um, and then Georgia gave it an opportunity? Well, I think, you know, it was, it, I think both sides bear some responsibility in as much. And, you know, the European uh, Union did a big report at the end of the war, um, hundreds of pages, which more or less came to that conclusion. I mean, the problem was um, Russia, you know, really didn't like Mikhail Saakashvili, uh, the young Georgian leader who had overthrown Shevardnadze, you know, studied at Columbia University, um, you know, pro-West, said that Georgia should join NATO, etc., uh, etc. And, and flew the European Union flag, um, you know, uh, where the Georgian Parliament is in Tbilisi. So he he was pro-Western. Um, and at the end, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were two provinces, as you said, in Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, um, that didn't want to be part of Georgia. This is all part of Stalin's ethnic gerrymandering. I mean, that the kind of that Stalin put together the the borders of these different republics of the Soviet Union which then became independent states, where he pitted different ethnic groups against each other. So they had been fighting in the early 90s, and South Ossetia and Abkhazia didn't want to be under Tbilisi's rule. And, and Sekashvili came into office determined to reunite Georgia to get these provinces under 
Tbilisi's control, and then to move forward and ask to join NATO and the European Union. Um, and um, the people in those two provinces didn't particularly like him, and they were supported partly um, all the time by Russia. Um, and then what happened was um, you had a series of kind of escalating incidents. Um, uh, Saakashvili, uh, um, you know, the Georgian government arrested several Russian officials uh, and accused them of being spies and, and did it in a very public way, not, not in the way you, know, you normally do it, which is kind of discreetly and you hand them back. The Russians retaliated with economic sanctions against Georgia. I mean, um, Russians tend to drink mineral water from Georgia and Georgian wine, and they suddenly cut that all off. Um, you have to also understand that um, remittances are a very important part of the Georgian GDP. So there were many Georgians, as there are from other post-Soviet states, working in Russia and then sending home, you know, part of their earnings to keep the economy going. So it's a, it's a sort of strange symbiotic relationship. And then in the year 2008, you had a NATO summit in Bucharest, where the Bush administration was pushing with the Georgians to get Georgian a membership action plan, which would have meant that Georgia would have had a path to join NATO. Uh, the Germans were against this, the French, other countries, it didn't work out like that. And the Germans, and well, not the Germans, but the NATO countries made it clear that Georgia would only have a prospect like that if it was territorially whole. So that's all the background. And then gradually that summer of 2008, um, there were military provocations. The Russians had peacekeepers um, uh, uh, in these in these two um, provinces, if you like. But um, it's it's more or less clear that the initial um, shelling was done um, by the Georgians, but then the Russians re retaliated with disproportionate force. They then invaded Georgia. They, in other words, they they had tried to provoke Saakashvili. They succeeded in provoking him. He took some military action, and then they swept in. Um, in the end, they didn't take Tbilisi, which they probably could have done if they wanted to. Um, but that was that. That was how that war began. And I have to say that you know the, the senior uh, Bush administration officials, including Condoleezza Rice and others, and President Bush himself, had repeatedly said to President Saakashvili, "Do not use force." to try and take back these provinces. You cannot do this. And um, that, you know, that's not how it worked out. Yeah, it turned out pretty, pretty bad for, for Georgia. Um, I think that this is a good time to uh, kind of raise the issue of where uh, domestic factors play into uh, shaping U.S.-Russian relations. Um, I think of Georgia in particular, because you've had congressmen, you know, even um, up to the vice presidency, uh, Dick Cheney giving spe anti-Russian speeches. But many politicians in the U.S., and I'm, I'm thinking vice versa as well, have seen it politically convenient to use, you know, anti-Russian relations, you know, somewhat like Russian politicians are, you know, can use anti-American rhetoric to get domestic support. Uh, what type of influence do you think overall that uh, you know these domestic issues have uh, have got about shaping relations? And I'm thinking in particular of someone like John McCain when he ran for yeah. president. I think you know I think that the domestic politics um, have had an impact on U.S.-Russia policy. It's interesting to note that the U.S. Congress has never been or rarely been a proponent of better U.S.-Russian relations in the past 22 years. You occasionally have Russia caucuses and individual Congress people who are interested in promoting it, but in general, um, that's not true. I think one of the reasons has to do with the fact that Russia is not an economic 
an important economic partner for the United States. Yeah. It's never been, um, even before these sanctions, you know, our total trade was, what, $40 billion? You compare that to China, $500 billion. So in other words, there have never been groups that have lobbied very effectively for, um, you know, better relations with Russia in the U.S. Congress. And since the U.S. Congress, you know, was very concerned uh, with issues like Iran and saw Russia as a villain, uh, often as an antagonist and supporting other, the construction of nuclear power plant in Iran, uh, and as you say, Senator McCain very much being um, uh, a very harsh critic of Russia and during, and during the 2008 election campaign, just after the Russia-Georgia war, you know, accusing candidate Obama of being soft on Russia. Yeah. So this has always been a domestic issue. And you certainly see that today with the Ukraine crisis. Um, uh, many people in Congress, Democrats and Republicans, are blaming the Obama administration for what happened in Ukraine and calling for much tougher sanctions against Russia. So this has been uh, a theme throughout the past 22 years, partly because there really aren't too many stakeholders in the United States that argue for better relations with Russia. And then if you look at some of the things that Russia does, that really feeds this kind of criticism, particularly during uh, election years. Yeah, I can just picture senator after senator in my mind making anti-Russian speeches talking about Ukraine, like the, the battle between mm -hmm. good and evil. Lindsey uh, Graham of South Carolina right. comes to mind. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how that plays out and influences uh, foreign policy. Um, uh, before we move on to the Obama administration, uh, I'd like to get your take on what you mentioned earlier, the place of Iran in U.S.-Russian relations, uh, especially during the Bush administration, where it you know, raised any number of controversial issues. So, I mean, you know, Russia... Um had had a complicated relationship with Iran. After the 1979 revolution, um, you know, the, the Russian-Iranian relation, or the Soviet-Iranian relationship deteriorated because, you know, we were the big Satan, but the Soviet Union was the little Satan. It was a godless country. Uh, but, um, and, and the history of Soviet-Iranian relations was also complicated. Uh, but what happened when um, the Soviet Union collapsed was, um, you know, Russia desperately needed money. It obviously had a lot of very highly trained scientists with a lot of nuclear scientists with a lot of know-how, particularly in terms of building nuclear power plants. There had been this Boucher reactor, which in fact the Germans had started to build in the 1970s. This was, of course, when the Shah was still in power. And then that project, you know, had just been left alone. But then um, shortly after the Soviet collapse, you then get these, the beginning of discussions between the Iranian government and the Russians on the construction of the Boucher power plant and various other deals, um, energy deals too. And so in the 1990s, Russia got involved in constructing the Boucher plant. The United States also suspected that in this kind of freewheeling um, age, there were a number of kind of entities in Russia um, that weren't fully controlled by the government that were selling more nefarious, if you like, nuclear know-how to the Iranians. And so there were there was congressional sanctions against Russia in the 1990s and in the Bush administration, great concern about this. Um, and then the other dimension of this was as the Bush administration started to build up the missile defense program and saying that this was directed against Iran, um, increasingly the Russians would say, no, 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 we know that this missile defense program is directed against us. Why are you deploying, why do you want to 
want to, to deploy some components of that in Poland if you're worried about Iran. So in 2007, when President Putin went to this Kennebunkport meeting, uh, he came up with a proposal that the United States and Russia should jointly run a radar facility in Azerbaijan, uh, where Russia and the Russians and Azeris were cooperating. Azerbaijan is, of course, next door to Iran. So in a way, the Russians were sort of calling the U.S. bluff and saying, if you're really worried about Iran, why do you want to deploy things in Poland? Let's work together in Azerbaijan. Well, Bush administration officials looked at the facility in Azerbaijan and they said, it's not appropriate, it's run down. The Russians also um, suggested that the U.S. and Russia jointly work, in fact, at another radar station in the south of Russia, but again, the U.S. didn't accept this because the Bush administration wanted to deploy these components. But generally in the Bush administration, the suspicion was that Russia was helping the Iranians develop their nuclear capability, and every time the Russians said that the Iranians hadn't done anything that contravenes any of the agreements they've signed, uh, the, the administration was much more skeptical about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of politics that go into that, and then it carried into the Obama administration, but I mean, I've read some accounts that at the end of the day, you know, the U.S., if it really wanted to, could have, you know, taken the money, invested the technology to make it work in Azerbaijan. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I can't really tell if that argument has any weight. I mean, I suspect it doesn't. But at the end of the day, could the U.S. conceivably have made it work if they just put, you know, quote unquote, American know-how and money <laughs> into uh, um, investing it's, it's into it? It's possible, and the Russians certainly feel that this was a missed opportunity. I mean, I guess it then comes back to the question of the lack of trust. If you're going to do something like that with the Russians, you have to have, you have to believe that we're on the same page in this. And I think there was too much suspicion in this country, at least, about whether we really were. Yeah, that's that's true. So that brings us uh, to the uh, fourth reset of uh, the Obama administration, the administration that you know coins the phrase. it's an interesting time in U.S.-Russian relations. Um, can you speak to how you know the Obama administration came in and the different set of circumstances it faced with the transition to power from uh, Putin to Medvedev? Medvedev, right. So you know, um, as President Obama was, uh, candidate Obama was, was running for election, um, you know, you had the Georgia war. It was a low point in U.S.-Russian relations. Um, most contacts were cut off. And so he had an advisory group um, who was, which was trying to think of different ways to approach Russia, more productive ways. Um, and so once he came into um, office um, and then you had, uh, you know, the, the global financial crisis and you had an opportunity in fact, the first opportunity where he met um, a president was Medvedev, um, which was before he was actually inaugurated, but after the election, it was at one of these, these G20 meetings. Um, and so the, the idea of the Obama administration was sort of to step back um, and to recalibrate issues, to try and listen to the Russians more, to try and deal with them precisely on those issues about which they cared a lot. And so again, the nuclear issue is very important. This is now a new U.S. administration, which, unlike the Bush administration, does care about arms control, wants to have another major agreement with Russia, which is really music to the Russians' ears. And then, as part of it, you did have this new, younger president um, in the Kremlin. Um, He was of the same generation as President Obama. And I think at the beginning, uh, the the White House really focused on um, President Medvedev. And from a protocol point of view, that made sense. Uh, President Obama's 
first and only visit to Russia was in July of 2009 when he had um, a breakfast with Putin that was rather awkward. He asked Putin the question, where did things go wrong? And he got a lecture, I think, for one and a half hours. Uh, and then he met, you know, I mean, he'd met President Medvedev before, but, you know, they seemed to get on well. Medvedev came here uh, in 2010. They ate hamburgers together and raised Halbergers, which was a great hamburger joint in Arlington, Virginia. He owned his first Twitter account, President Medvedev. And so this was a relationship that was very much focused on these two men. You know, this in, in the all of these resets, they only work when the relay all the times that they work is when the relationship between the two presidents is good. So sort of in the beginning, if you like, um, with um, Clinton and Yeltsin, in the sort of 2001-2002 period between uh, Putin and, and George W. Bush. And so now you had, again, four years um, where the, or almost four years, where, they, uh, where the relationship seemed to work much better. Now, the problem was that, um, you know, we now know, and, and as time went on, people began to realize that, you know, President Medvedev was the de jure president of Russia, but he wasn't the de facto president. The person who was running the country was still Prime Minister Putin. And during that period, there were no other meetings between President Obama and Prime Minister Putin, and the Russians complained about that. Now, from a protocol point of view, um, you know, President Obama, it was correct that he met with President Medvedev because they were the two presidents. But perhaps it, they could, one could have tried harder to have more contact between the two leaders. But so, whereas you had a number of real successes in this reset, in the Obama reset, the New START agreement, um, Russia then, I mean, this is, Medvedev then understands the problem with Iran, that the Iranians are enriching uh, uranium in a secret facility, and when shown the evidence, he agrees to much tougher sanctions on Iran. Uh, the United States and Russia agree that the northern distribution route, in other words, the transportation route to and from Afghanistan at a time when the U.S.-Pakistani relationship was very bad, this opened up possibilities to continue uh, the campaign in Afghanistan. Russia eventually joined the World Trade Organization. So there were a number of areas where there was, re where there was real success. On others, for instance, the missile defense issue, there wasn't. Um, but this was all very much based on the relationship between the two presidents. And in September of 2011, when Putin stood up and announced that he and Medvedev were changing places, that's when the downward slide really began. People went out on the streets in Moscow and they protested. They didn't want Putin to come back. They said, why are you treating us as children? Don't we have any say in this? Putin immediately blamed Secretary Hillary Clinton for paying the people to go out and demonstrate. And then um, from then on, uh, it's been a downward slide to the very uh, difficult position we're in now. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a natural segue to where I was going. I mean, we can take our pick of any number of issues where the relationship has declined in the last few years. I mean, everything from, uh, I mean, just going going down the line of Syria to the Snowden affair, uh, to debates over um, the, the missile defense, uh, the Middle East, ISIS. I mean, we could keep going on and on. I mean, what do you, I mean, what do you think the most important issue uh, has been, why the relationship has gotten so bad, and the rhetoric from Putin is, you know, not showing any signs of, uh, you know, abating. And certainly, but I didn't even bring yeah. up the issue of the Ukraine, which is another but, huge issue. So, so, I mean, if you go back um, to the 2011 period, um, you come right back to the question of regime change and U.S. democracy promotion efforts and the U.S. Congress. So the U.S. Congress, um, as Russia is anticipating joining 
the World Trade Organization. There's a piece of legislation that remained on the books since 1975, the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, which um, denied most favored nation status to the Soviet Union because of its emigration restrictions. Now, you fast forward to the year 2011, there are no more emigration restrictions, there's no more Soviet Union, but the U.S. business is going to be disadvantaged once Russia is in the WTO um, if there is no most favored nation status. So that legislation has to be lifted. But the U.S. Congress is unwilling to lift, to abolish that legislation and give Russia, you know, the good housekeeping feel of approval unless there's yeah. some other legislation on the books. And so they passed something called the Justice for Sergei Magnitsky Act. And that refers to a Russian lawyer, a young man of 35, um, who was working for a, a firm called Hermitage, Hermitage Capital, um, whose uh, um, head, an American citizen now living in Britain, had been thrown out of Russia because of criticisms he made. Anyway, this lawyer... Um, you know, had discovered all kinds of very high-level corruption in Russia. And so um, instead of, you know, prosecuting various people in Russia, they then threw him in jail, they mistreated him, and at the age of 35, he died in jail under, you know, pretty bad circumstances. So his name was taken uh, as a way of saying that the United States Congress was going to create a blacklist of Russians who were involved in his death and, and, uh, and events surrounding it and prevent them from coming to the United States. So that was legislation. In retaliation, the Russian Duma, obviously um, under, influence, under the influence of the Kremlin or Prime Minister Putin at the time, passed something called the Dima Yakovlev Act. Dima Yakovlev ref, um, referred to a young Russian boy who'd been adopted by Americans and um, had died again under, you know, unfortunate circumstances in the United States. And so they used that to say no more American adoptions of Russian children. And this was a huge blow um, to many people in the United States, people who had initiated adoption procedures years before who were waiting for these children. These are children that Russians didn't want to adopt, particularly um, children with disabilities. Anyway, they passed that legislation in retaliation for that, and they also banned certain U.S. politicians from visiting Russia. Um, so, so that was the beginning of it. And then... Uh, Putin's re-elected. Um, President Obama, uh, you know, is, is re-elected later on in 2012, but even after Putin's re-election, he's invited to come to the United States um, to a G8 summit. Uh, he then cancels it. He says, well, I'm too busy, you know, working on my new cabinet. Um, he's waiting for President Obama to be re-elected. President Obama's re-elected, but the relationship is already very, very tense then. And all of the attempts, for instance, on missile defense to, to achieve some kind of cooperative agreement have failed. Um, 2013 begins, and the new Obama team goes to Moscow. They're trying to, again, work out an agenda for a presidential meeting, and then Edward Snowden lands in Moscow. Now we can debate... Um, how pre-planned this was, um, you know, we know that he spent his 30th birthday in the um, uh, in the Russian consulate in Hong Kong. He lands in Russia. The White House insists that the Russians return him to the U.S. Obviously, they do, the Russians don't return him. This is a great propaganda coup for Putin, who says that he's a defender of uh, human rights and uh, um, as someone who's exposing nefarious practices by the U.S. government. And I think it's at that point that. Uh, the, the Obama White House realizes this thing is really over. Um, and so they, they cancel a bilateral summit that was supposed to have taken place um, in September. 
However, Syria then intervenes, um, and because uh, the, the Obama administration wasn't taking decisive action after the discovery of the chemical weapons attacks. It, Putin then seizes the initiative and says, let's disarm Syria of its chemical weapons. Um, in so doing and cooperating with the U.S., um, the U.S. is in fact dealing with the Assad government, which is, it has sworn it's not going to do. So that was one instance where uh, the U.S. and Russia were cooperating, despite the fact that Edward Snowden <laughs> was was in Moscow. But then, you know, the final straw, obviously, is the beginning of the uh, the events in Ukraine, the revolution there. I mean, as uh, one byproduct of the reset had been that the Obama administration had really recused itself in many ways from dealing with Ukraine. It, had, it didn't want to irritate relations with Russia. It had said to the Europeans, you deal with the Yanukovych government. Um, it did. And then, of course, um, when the revolution broke out, the U.S. came back. And now, of course, the story um, that you hear and we heard last week at a, uh, from uh, President Putin in, a, in, in his speech is that there was the United States that was responsible uh, in February for the quote-unquote fascist coup uh, in Kiev um, and that it's been responsible for all the bad things that are happening there. You're, you're used to the word fascist. Um, I mean, well, it's Putin's, but you uh, you quoted him. I see that language coming back more and more and just following Russian events. And it, it reminds me, um, at least in some ways, of the uh, rhetoric from the Soviet officials during uh, whenever they had to deal with U.S. human rights critiques or the issue of dissent, which, you know, where most of my research has been done in my publications. Um for instance, I remember the Soviet government referring to Andrei Sakharov as a fascist because he had the support of dissenters in the Ukraine. Um, it seems like that kind of image of kind of that bipolar, uh, you know, either you're for us or against us is really kind of coming back into Putin's language, you know, throwing the fascist label out pretty freely, referring to events in the uh, in the former Soviet Republic. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, all of the rhetoric now sounds a lot like the Cold War. Anyone you don't like is a neo-Nazi or a fascist. Yeah. And in fact, last week, Putin said that the United States was responsible both for the creation of these neo-Nazi groups and for the creation of the Islamic State. So, you know, all the evils of the world now are laid at the feet of the United States. So what's, I mean, what's the end, uh, end result in Ukraine? How is that going to be settled? How can, you know, we... Uh... The world, including, you know, obviously including the U.S., come reach some agreement that you know has a, a peaceable, uh, a peaceful future. Excuse me for uh, for Ukraine. Well, I mean, at the moment we're in a we're in a situation where you essentially have the makings of a frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine, rather like the frozen conflict in Transnistria. Uh, Moldova or Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia. In other words, uh, the government, the newly elected government in Kiev, cannot um, extend its influence or control over that area. It's not part of Russia, but it's of course supported by Russia. Um, and uh, you know, it, it it may become again a mini statelet. That would of course be very difficult for the Ukrainians. Um, there's a ceasefire, a very tenuous ceasefire now in eastern Ukraine, but people are still getting killed. Um, a, you know, if the Russians were willing to 
tell their proxies essentially in eastern Ukraine to end this, to end the frozen conflict, uh, to cease supporting them, and to allow Ukraine to become territorially whole again, then I think the outlines of the settlement are clear. I mean, there has to be significant political decentralization in Ukraine. Um, the eastern regions have to feel that they have more political and economic autonomy, and they have to also fear that, to, to feel that, you know, the government in Kiev cares about them. Clearly, they have to have language rights. The Russian language will have to be on an equal part, at least in that part of Ukraine, with the Ukrainian language. Um, Ukraine would also, and I mean, the current president has said that, maintain for the time being its what's called its non-bloc status. NATO membership is not on offer for Ukraine, um, and so it, it can continue saying it's a non-bloc country. Um, I mean, the Ukrainian government, this one, wants to, says that it would like to join the European Union. That's really not on offer either. I think it would be harder to get them to say we never, we don't want to pursue this path, but at least for the time being to do that. that I mean, that would be the best outcome um, that one could expect. And then I think if that were possible, but that's a huge if, then I do think that the United States, um, the different, you know, Europe, um, all of the, you know, post-Soviet states, the common neighborhood between Europe and Russia and Russia have to sit down and they do have to revisit these questions of Euro-Atlantic security architecture, um, go back to some of the basic principles and try and come to an agreement where Russia would respect, you know, the, the borders of the different countries and wouldn't try and, and whittle away at this post-Cold War settlement. So that, I think, is the ultimately what has to happen. But I have no idea how long it will take until we're in a situation where that's possible. Yeah, it's interesting you, you you put it in those terms because it seems Putin, who's you know in any number of forums, has talked about the sanct uh, sanctity of state sovereignty, and you know seems very willing to ignore that uh, that rhetoric when it suits his um, the his perception of the interest of Russia with their neighbors. <laughs> seems yeah. to go by the wayside very quickly. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time, and I just I have a few more questions um, uh, to, to to kind of end the interview. Um, We've gotten into a lot of specifics today, and I was wondering at the end of the day, how do you, if you, you know, had to sit down and explain to someone, it's very clear that in some instances in the last, you know, since the end of uh, the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russians and Americans have managed at time to time to find common cause and, you know, forge agreements that work for both sides. Um, but most of the time, the relationship has been competitive. It's been strained. Uh, at the end of the day, is that just a function of geography, historical experience? Is it uh, you know, inevitable that this is going to go on um, for the time being, that countries with different uh, understandings of how the world works and different perceptions of their interests and different under, you know, history, geography, is, are they just destined to kind of you know, plot along and work when they can and you know, disagree more than, than not? And I think in the current situation, that is the case. I think we and Russia have a fundamentally different understanding of, you know, the drivers of world politics. We have a different understanding of what a productive relationship would look like. I think the U.S. still believes that the best kind of relationship with Russia would be a Russia that buys into our understanding of international law, international norms, respect of sovereignty. Um, and the Russians would say, well, their understanding of a productive relationship is where one where the United States, <clears throat> you know, respects their right, uh, again, to the sphere of privileged interests. 
and to take into and taking into account their view of the world and international institutions. So those are fundamentally different, and I don't think they're going to come any closer. Um, we are we're not destined to be rivals. Um, uh, be, and, and right now, I would say we're only rivals in the post-Soviet space. We're not global rivals. I mean, the United States remains much more powerful than Russia and able to project itself globally. Although the Russians believe that the United States is in decline, but I think it's it's probably would be a better starting point for the United States to understand that we're two very different countries with two very different understandings of the international system and to work pragmatically with Russia on issues where we can and must work together and to understand that there are other issues on which we cannot work together and really not try to. So you would get, um, if, if, if uh, I understand your conclusion, that you would, the U.S. should be very circumspect about you know, promoting democracy in Russia and even to some degree in the former Soviet republics as, um, you know, at the end of that complicates relations uh, to kind of push forward this freedom agenda or, um, you know, democracy promotion or criticize Russian domestic conduct. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Is that something the U.S. should back away from as, as it pursues its uh, try to... I mean... Yeah, the problem, with, yeah the problem with the U.S. is, you know, obviously it's part of our of who we are that we believe in these values and the values of democracy and that we're likely to try and promote them. But the problem is we don't always do it consistently. And you mentioned Vice President Cheney, and in my book, you know, I go into the fact that he he made these speeches criticizing Russia, and sandwiched between that speech were was great praise for the government of Azerbaijan and the government of Kazakhstan. Now, both of these countries, um, you know, have worked with the United States on issues of international terrorism and security, but neither of these countries could be described as a democracy. And I think from the Russian point of view, they seize on these issues or they talk about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So the problem with democracy promotion is we do this selectively too. And I think it's it's very difficult to see how, in the case of Russia, I mean, of course we have people who've done very important things there, but if you look at a Russia that's becoming less democratic, I think you do have to step back and reconsider sort of the efficacy of of some of these efforts. And we, we really can't do very much anymore because most of the NGOs have been thrown out. That's true. Um I'm also wondering if I can pick your brain a bit on the, what you see uh, happening in the next 15 to 20 years in Russia, how it evolves. Um, some time ago on the Charlie Rose show, I saw um, Stephen Cohen uh, give an interview, um, and he basically seemed to argue that over time Russia will liberalize, become more democratic. They'll get rid of these laws, like these the recent laws that got so much attention in uh, the West, the anti uh uh, what's uh, homosexual propaganda laws mm-hmm. that those are just a temporary blip and eventually the Russians will move away from that. Uh, I mean, where do you see Russia, you know, developing over the <laughs> next 15 to 20 years? I mean, you, you touch on this a little bit in your, in your conclusion. Well, I certainly hope that, that Russia will develop in a more, um, a democratic direction, again, not necessarily looking like the United States or European countries, but allowing the Russian people more freedom of choice and more self-determination. And, and hopefully the, these laws, I mean, Russia now puts itself forward as the guardian of conservative international morals against a decadent West, and hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, this will change too. Um, but the problem is, right now, you have you you have a, an increasing clampdown on Russian society. Uh, the the, the the government's trying to clamp down more on the internet. There are rumors that the kind of freedom of travel, the personal freedoms that Russians have had since the collapse of the Soviet Union, those will be curtailed 
Title II. So the question is, how do you get from where we are now um, to a more liberal system? And so that's going to depend on what happens. Um, uh, I mean, what we heard last week in Russia is that Mr. Putin will be in power at least for another 10 years. That's until 2024. It's, highly, it's difficult to see how, uh, if that is true, that the system begins to liberalize from within because you have, you know, he, uh, Mr. Putin presides over a system where there are different groups of people and they all have uh, a vested interest in the status quo. Now, some of the economic elites, of course, would like to have a Russia that's more open to the West because they like to travel there and they have lots of investments there. Um, but there, it doesn't seem that at the moment any of those people, you know, would be able to put pressure on Putin. And in fact, the premise behind Western sanctions, which was to target certain individuals close to Putin and hope they would put pressure on him, that hasn't worked either. So whereas I agree that in the long run, there has to be change in Russia. And, and, and because if Russia doesn't modernize its political and economic system, um, it will fall, fall further and further behind, say, a country like China. Russia is not a rising power. Its economic situation isn't good. You know, unless it modernizes it, then it's really going to face a rather grim future. Um, at the moment, it's very difficult to see how you get from where we are now uh, to a more open and liberal Russia in 10 or 15 years. So is, is it going to take a top-down reform, like something similar to a Gorbachev? Uh, I mean, not exactly the same, but someone to reform and set in motion from the top. I mean, given the weakness of the civil society, independent groups, because I, I mean, re reading your book and listening to you, it doesn't sound like there's going to be, you know, um, you know, a citizen armed with rights, you know, taking matters into their own hands and, you know, bringing about change. Well, that's, that too, there are several scenarios. And one of them obviously is that you have someone else coming into the Kremlin who understands this. And so you get some top-down reforms. And I suppose one of the other scenarios is, in fact, that the economic situation deteriorates mm -hmm. and the society begins to fall apart more. And then you do have another popular revolution from below. Yeah, that's that's a, uh, some historians argue. Um, one last question. I'm, I'm sorry to take so much of your time, but I just okay. I find this so fascinating, and you, you, it's it's a very enlightening conversation. Um, what does your in your mind? Uh, what do most Russians think of uh, in terms of how Russia is depicted in American popular culture? Um, we talked, we spoke in the pre-interview. I'm just amazed by some of the things that are passed off about Russia on mainstream shows that I presume have, on some level, have a global audience, like South Park, Saturday Night Live. I mean, South Park comparing Russia to third world countries. The Saturday Night Live has a bunch of skits with the Russian woman who basically, you know. It's, it's, it's treated as very poor, very stupid, uh, kind of making fun of life in Russia. The Daily Show has plenty of skits about life in Russia. I mean, do Russians internalize that? Does, how does is it? Is there any way to gauge what kind of effect that has on you know uh, the U.S. <laughs> well, all, well, all I can all I can tell you is that I mean, anti-American sentiment is rising in Russia. Um, I mean, Russians who do follow these things, you know, obviously feel insulted by the depiction of uh, of Russians. But of course, the depiction of Americans in Russian popular culture <laughs> is pretty bad too at the moment. So, um, you know, although of course people. Do watch you know Hollywood movies and things, so I think yeah. I mean I think to the extent that the Russians understand this is how they're depicted, you know this certainly doesn't promote better U.S.-Russian relations. Uh, and you know we still I mean again if you look at our popular culture, you know the, our thriller movies, James Bond, it's you know it was Russian organized crime, um, or you have the Americans, you know where you have these super agents based of course on real fact. So um, yeah, I think we 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 still await the day in the United States. 
States when we could have a, a show on television that would sort of depict Russians as they actually are. Yeah, and I haven't even, I haven't even brought up the band uh, Pussy Riot, which is a whole nother issue we don't have time to go into, but <laughs> I was amazed at an answer. I, I watched the Pussy Riot um, a documentary on Netflix, and Putin gave an amazing answer justifying their arrest when they went into, I, I can't remember, the, one, of the, one of the main churches, I believe. It was a Christ the Savior yes, church. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And he was justifying their arrest. And he said something that I didn't see coming. It amazed me. He said that at the end of the day, we had to arrest these people because they went down the wrong path and treated, treated religion, which many people in Russia take seriously, just like the Bolsheviks did. Uh, during the early period of Soviet history and disrespected the Orthodox Church. And he could not stand for that. And Russians wouldn't stand for such mockery of religion like the Bolsheviks did. And I'm like, wow, well, this guy, this guy is a politician. He's, you know, he's he's well-versed. Quite an answer. And, and yes, so... Well, that's uh, that's. I think we've uh, taken enough of your time. I'd want to thank you once again for speaking with me about your book. It's a it's a fascinating read. It gives much food for thought about the future of of Russian uh, U.S. relation, what's gone right, what's gone wrong, and I think you also make a very reasonable argument that Americans, despite what the ups and downs, are going to have to stay engaged with Russia to address important global problems in the future, even though it may be, you know, not the most pleasant experience. It is an important relationship. So once again, okay. thank you for speaking with me, and uh, best of luck in uh, your your new work. Thank you very much. All right, thank, thank you. you. You have been listening to Christian Peterson interview Angela Stint on New Books in World Affairs. We hope you drop by in the near future.